This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. You're listening to 3RRR. I'm Dr. Shane. A big thank you to the team from Radiotherapy for bringing us through to 11 o'clock. You've got an hour of science with us now. In the studio is Dr. Ailey. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Good to have you back. Thank you. It's good to be back. Where were you? I was in uh, North America in general, just ridiculous <laughs> North America. No, I was on a research visit and conferences, workshops, all that stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. Happens in the Northern Hemisphere somewhere. Yeah, it does. Junk it. Mm. Um, <laughs> Dr. <laughs> Crystal, how are you going? Good morning. I'm excellent this morning. You are? I am. Well, that's, uh, that's good. Did you ride in? It wasn't raining, I suppose, so you got your ride. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. like to be out and out. Mm. Very good. All right, we're going to uh, get into some news. We have three really amazing guests today, folks, so stick around for those. But before we get to them, some science news, please, Dr. Ailey. So, Dr. Shane, I think you briefly mentioned this last week, but uh, as in your own words, I think you said you did a bit of a half-assed job. I don't recall saying that. Oh, hang on. <laughs> hey, I'm, I'm putting words what, in his mouth. Oh, yeah, if no, it's no, off no, air, no, it's no. off air. No, no, no. Yeah. This, is, um, this is a story that you briefly touched on about at carbon capture and storage, I suppose, that came mm. out of, of uh, the magazine Science last week. Um, and there's been a few stories flying around about this, and, and namely about uh, CO2 getting stoned, as they call it. So That's <laughs> catchy. It is catchy. Yeah. I liked it. I liked it. But look, this is the latest in geoengineering, I suppose you could call it. So geoengineering is basically about trying to reverse what we have done to the planet, particularly mm. with regard to, to climate change and, and rising global temperatures, changing climate, all that kind of stuff. So trying to reverse what's going on. Now, of course, the simplest explanation would be to just stop emitting fossil fuels, but apparently it's not that simple, um, particularly in political and economic circles. So they're trying to find all these other ways to, um, I suppose, mitigate the effects of of Hmm. global warming. So now one of these is carbon capture and storage, and this usually involves taking uh, carbon dioxide, pumping it into the ground, pumping it into the ground, and then um, making sure it doesn't leak out again and keeping it there for a long time. <laughs> so, But what they've done so far is carbon capture and storage so far has, has literally been chucking this stuff in the ground, chucking, um, what do you call it, like harder rock over the top so it doesn't escape because that's one of the big problems is it mm. leaks mm. back out into the atmosphere, which isn't good. Um, and, yeah, it's it's slow, basically, Captures it, keeps it, turns into rock eventually, decades, centuries, mm. millennia later. It's a very, very slow process. And you've, got, and you've got to find the right locations to do that too, right, like these do. reservoirs. Yeah, so usually it's kind of old oil, oil wells. Yeah, yeah exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. old oil. Pump it in, hope it doesn't leak out. Yeah, that's mm, right. Old so. oil wells, sandstone, I, stuff like this. And I guess that's sort of an approach. It has been um, seen very negatively by people who think that it's enabling. It's like, well, it's okay to keep pumping it out if we can yeah. That's right, down. literally so, sweeping it out so of the carbon carpet. carbon capture and storage has been uh, quite yeah. a sensitive topic. Yeah, um, and I mean, this is... This is the issue with geoengineering in general. It's kind of philosophical concerns. It's like if we Mm. can just stop emitting, why don't we just do that? But you know what? In the absence of that, we need these kind of technologies. But but the exciting thing about this story that came out that that Shane touched on last week um, was that... A new study uh, done in Iceland, actually, uh, led by the University of Southampton, has managed to do this in a very short period of time, much shorter than they thought. As I said, this stuff usually takes kind of decades, at minimum decades, to Mm. turn into hard rock um, so that we can capture it and it won't leak. This took 18 months. 
That's fast. This is really fast. So mm. what they did was they took um, basically greenhouse gases from a, a, I think it was a coal plant or something in, in Iceland. Geothermal plant. Geothermal plant, mm. thank you. So they, they, um, they took a bunch of, of CO2, pumped it into a whole bunch of water, basically made a huge vat of soda water, effectively. <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> Chucking a slice of lime. Yeah, why not? Better vodka? No. Um, oh, okay. so, no. We're going too far there. Um, but basically then they, they pumped it into porous basalt. So this is kind of just rock, volcanic rock that's got holes in it. They pumped it in at really high pressure, let it sit for a while, and they thought, oh, yeah, this will take about 10 years, and eventually that CO2 will be extracted from the water and it will, will um, sit in the rock and and not do much and we'll have solid rock form of, of carbon mm. dioxide, which we can then just leave and it's all stable, it's all good, it's not going to escape back to the atmosphere. Anyway, about 18 months in, they found one of their machines wasn't working that was kind of, you know measuring this stuff and, and going on. So I thought, oh, what's going on? So yeah. I lifted it out of the ground. Turns out it was covered in this white and green scale. This white and green scale was the carbon dioxide. Wow. And it had happened a lot quicker than they thought. So they went back down and measure. And, yeah, within two years, 95% of that carbon dioxide that they'd originally pumped down there was in this rock form, solid form that was now stable, sitting there. And, of course, there's a huge volcanic beds all over the world. Mm, they're trying mm. this in uh, Washington State in the United States as, as well. Um, and uh, data's not published yet, but it seems that it's worked there as well. Fabulous. So it's just working a lot quicker than they ever imagined. So this is it's really promising. I mean, it's not, you know, a solution. It's not the silver bullet, but it's really yeah. promising. How energy intensive is the process? And you talked about high pressures being involved. Yeah. Um, you know, how much energy do you have to put in? To yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. And the short answer is, I don't know. Yeah. Um, so they, I mean, I know they pumped it up to, I think it was 25 atmospheres. Um, so 25 times the atmospheres of Earth, chucked it in the water, added a bit of additional water, and that's what kind of started the process, mm. the catalyzing. I think if you, can, yeah. if you can use renewable can, energy though, yeah, to, exactly. to drive that process, you know, yeah. then whammo, crash. Yeah, it's kind of, yeah. I always think of it though, it's, you know, there's, there's a house, the house is on fire, yeah. someone's standing on one side with a flamethrower, yeah. making the house be on fire, and someone walks up to the other side and with an eyedropper, yes. <laughs> I'm helping. Yes. Well, that's <laughs> and the it thing. does help. But, it does help. But the flamethrower guy is the one you want to remove. That's right. right. And yeah. so, I mean, this is this is the whole question: is is how much of this stuff mm. will it actually remove? But at the end of the day, time. even if we stopped emitting CO2 today, we're, we're still, still going to get the other bit out. Get the yeah. other bit out. Absolutely. So, so I yeah. do feel like that developing these technologies, and mm. I think that we are getting to the point where carbon capture storage is um, its time's come. That's yeah. right. Yeah. That's right. I mean, it's it's certainly I think not permission to, to keep going as we mm, have been, mm. but like you say, yeah, to pull this stuff two out. Two different sides of the, of the ledger, really. That's right, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. And I mean, 95% of the CO2 within two years, I think that's that's it's pretty incredible. That's not bad. Yeah. Dr. Crystal, what have you got for us? Dr. Shane, I know you're an astronomy fan. Um, I have been uh, known to do the odd uh, bit your, of astronomy. In your backyard. And I wanted to know... Uh, when you walk outside at night, just into your backyard, can you see the Milky Way if it's a cloudy, if it's a cloudless, clear night? I know which direction to look in. <laughs> well, from my house, actually, the the Milky Way is southeast, mm. and you got to do the numbers here. I, I live northwest of the city, so if I look to the southeast, I'm looking towards the CBD. Mm. So. I can see a couple of stars that are in the Milky Way, but no. Well, it's exactly, awful. because yeah. of the light, mm. light pollution. Yeah. And, and, um, the number of people in the world who can actually, you know, see the Milky Way from where they live is, is 
decreasing really and mm-hmm. it's really, really low. And this week, an international research team um, led by a group out of Italy have published a global atlas of light pollution. Um, and so they're looking at mapping this artificial sky brightness around the world. And when I was reading through the statistics, it was actually quite shocking um, in terms of the fact that 80% of the world's population live under these light-polluted skies. Mm. Um, and, uh, and the way they've been able to create this map um, is using high-resolution satellite data. So it's the first time that someone's ab- ab- able to be well, a multidisciplinary team using a lot of resources have been able to create a new model of, of brightness, of, of city brightness, um, uh, using some of the low-orbiting um, polar uh, satellites. And um, it turns out that 80% of North Americans and 60% of Europeans um, can't see the Milky Way at night. And, mm. you know, the, some of the most light-polluted um, places on Earth are places like Singapore, where the entire population is living under these quite artificially bright skies. So the thing I asked myself when I read this was, is this pollution? Like, what's the definition of, of pollution mm. in this case? I mean, what are we polluting? Because we're actually not polluting the light. It's not like we're, we're kind of polluting the sky. Um, and, and the big polluting question, the imagination. <laughs> but the big, I mean, the big question is this: is well, is it having an impact on mm. our on our um, ecosystem? I think more broadly, there are concerns from this is outside the scope of the work that was published, but there are concerns from epidemiologists about the effect of all of this artificial light on the transition to night time physiologies you know for people for animals for crops mm. you know what does it mean that we now live in a world where it's bright um, you know and and people's eyes don't adjust completely to to nighttime darkness because they're not used to ever being in nighttime darkness and um and some interesting points have been raised by commentators around this study around um the conversion of street lights to LED lights. Mm. Um, it, on one hand, it's an incredibly energy efficient way of doing street lighting. Um, but on the other hand, it could make sky glow worse because, um, the LED lights have different wavelengths and they've got far more blue wavelengths of light and blue, um, scatters mm. more broadly than sort of the more red, um, uh, wavelengths. And so how is it that as we again trans, uh, sort of, create more bright um, artificial lighting, how is that mm. going to then impact um, our, our light pollution? Mm. So, so here's a strange question for you. How bright is this stuff compared to, say, the moon? Because, you know, on a, the night when the, when the moon's really, really... Well, it's full yeah. and it's really, really bright and... How, so the, how does the, the so the moon? I mean, you know, those of us who do do some amateur astronomy and mm. so forth, and amateur being the keyword in my case, <laughs> um, know that you don't go and try and take photographs of the planets or so forth when it's a full moon because because there is a, a very yeah. bright object in the sky. Mm. Um, so the you know you can walk around in mm. moonlight quite mm. readily. It is very bright, and, and in some regards, this light is not brighter than the moon, mm. but because of its diffuse nature, it's everywhere. Yeah. The background lighting is such that it is greater than the light you get from stars. Yeah. And so you don't see those stars because this diffuse reflected lighting um, from the atmosphere is, is is above that level. There was a city a few years back, it may have been Prague, it was somewhere in Europe, where some laws were passed where you had to put certain shielding on lighting so that it only faced downwards. And this was a push from the astronomy associations in that country. And I can, someone can tweet in the the location, but it was somewhere in Europe. There was a country where they passed a law where all lighting, all street lighting and so forth, had to be covered so that pointed downwards, because a lot of lighting just you know goes wherever, no one cares, and it had a big influence on um, on the skies that they see. So a lot of this is kind of lazy design, I think, as well as anything. 
unnecessary design mm. and the fact that you know you only have to look at the iss feeds the international space station feeds of what the planet looks like as it goes over the night and you see this massive glow from various cities if you can see it that high up it's a problem oh. so, there's that yeah. beautiful map if anybody's ever seen it of all the the, the lights around the world and it outlines the continents you can yeah, make yeah. out oh, the yeah. continents you can make from, out the continents really easily. oh yeah. absolutely yeah. i've got yeah, a so. beautiful picture of melbourne's night sky yeah. from, from above and yeah. you can, you can map great. out where all the suburbs are yeah. but i still think that we should um hold it in a sense of wonder whenever i get visitors from the uk who come out here or family mm. and we take them out to the great ocean road and stand under the sky some people find it quite um intimidating because they've never seen it before yeah. it's so, sad but I think it's beautiful that we can still do that. And yeah. I think that, yeah, with smarter city design, um, yeah. we might be able to, to, to curb that. Yeah. Now, just very quickly, um, the Juno spacecraft, which some people may remember, was launched uh, back in 2011 now, so almost five years ago, is arriving at Jupiter. If you're not aware of that, it's a very big, whopping big planet. Um, in fact, you're not aware of Jupiter. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, you never know. Where People, have you been? Oh, you've got to make sure everyone's aware of the same things. But um, if you grabbed all the other planets in the solar system and yeah. whacked them all together, you wouldn't have half of Jupiter. That's amazing. I mean, Jupiter's amazing. If Jupiter was a hollow, sorry, I've got a whole lot of these. <laughs> if Jupiter was a hollow shell, you could fit a thousand Earths in there. Wow. Jupiter is probably the reason we exist because it would have drawn in a lot of bits and pieces mm. and scooped them in and blah, blah, blah. Um, anyway, you know, Jupiter is, I, I like to think of Jupiter's almost cool. a star. Yeah, but <laughs> it's it's amazing. But we actually know stuff all about Jupiter. In fact, a lot of spacecraft go past Jupiter and use it for its gravitational slingshot capabilities, but they don't hang around. In fact, there's there's been very little studying of Jupiter itself. So Juno is going to be the first probe to do that in detail because we don't know what's below the cloud layer. Oh, we wow. really haven't got any idea of what what's there. And there's guessing, but there's not a lot. So this will be a really good mission that will give us a lot of new data on a planet that's so influential of everything. And is it going to shed light on why the red dot's disappearing? Well, the, I can tell you that right now. The red dot's disappearing because it's a, it's a transitory storm like any other, you know, climatic event on on the planet that just happens to be big and so it's taking you know the time time. frames you know a hurricane on earth takes you know weeks days days, weeks Mm. um something this bigger than the earth on a planet like jupiter literally takes centuries to to go away and it's sadly it's going away 102.7 in the studio we have our first guest for today dr jennifer walls who is from the flory institute Jennifer, welcome to the studio. Thank you. Now, it's great to have you in here because you're talking about a topic that we've had many guests on over the years, but this is very different, the stuff you're doing. You're working on epilepsy. So let's give just that quick 10 second, what is epilepsy? What's going on in the brain? Yeah, great. So most people, when they think of epilepsy, uh, people who aren't familiar with it, think of think of seizures and think of patients who are falling to the floor, convulsing, mm. completely unconscious. And that is part of epilepsy, but that's only one type of seizure. So the type of epilepsy that I study is actually called partial epilepsy or focal epilepsy. And it's called that because it starts in usually one part of the brain, it can be multiple parts, and spreads from there. And what's really interesting about this type of epilepsy is that the part of the brain where the, that the seizures are affecting is going to determine the clinical manifestation of the seizures. Mm. 
So, so when you, so when you talk about the epilepsy starting in one part of the brain, I mean, what, what are we talking about there? What, what's starting, what's happening in that part of the brain? Right. So it's abnormal activity. We normally think of it as involving hypersynchronous firing of large populations of neurons. So a lot of people think of seizures or describe it as electrical storms in the brain, and it mm-hmm. can be thought of that way. It's just a malfunction. Okay. Yeah. And, in in someone who has has these sorts of seizures what what does that mean for that part of the brain does that part of the brain stop functioning or you know when there is this storm that's occurring of these you know all the, all these neurons firing at the same time I mean does that mean that part just physically can't do its job yeah um it's malfunctioning but you can almost think of it as not just shutting off but just doing something completely out there, completely abnormal. Mm. So, for example, if the seizure activity was affecting language parts of the brain, the seizure would involve somebody unable to understand language or to produce language and communicate. Or if it was a sensory type area, like a visual part of the brain, then it would be visual hallucinations. Mm. So it's just, it's really interesting to study that way because it's so varied and very specific to yeah. things yeah specific to every patient yeah. yeah now now my understanding is from the information you sent through is that in in each patient they'll have these points where there's the major seizure or, or so forth you know in a given time frame in a certain day but in between there are things happening as well that you are looking at and you can detect tell us about that yeah that's exactly right so in between the seizures um in a lot of patients it's a very common biomarker in this type of focal epilepsy where we see spikes on the brain waves so on the eeg or electroencephalography uh data which just records brain waves from electrodes on the scalp we see these big spikes and it's just this abnormal activity but it's a lot easier to study the spikes because they're more frequent than seizures Mm -hmm. seizures you know in in the hour we're collecting the data there's not really a good chance it's not predictable that we'll get an actual seizure in there so we tend to study the spikes instead and the spikes normally start in the same part of the brain that the seizure starts in and this um, is like something of a foreshock is is it a predictor or is um, it just happening all the time Normally, it's happening all the time. It's it depends on the patient. So mm. some patients, you know, have a spike every ten seconds. Some don't have any at all, or they're just a bit more infrequent. And they're really they're subclinical. The patients don't even know they're experiencing okay. them. You can't see them. I, they've been associated with transient cognitive impairment, so they actually are on some level affecting the patients, but they just seem invisible. So so how does it help us knowing that these spikes are there and and, and being able to actually detect them? Yeah, so that enables us kind of a little window into where the seizures might be starting. And in my case, um, what I do is use these fancy brain imaging technology techniques to try to map out exactly where in the brain these uh, this abnormal activity associated with the spikes, where it's coming from, but also trying to figure out when, exactly mm. when all these malfunctions are happening. Now, when, when you talk about ECG type stuff, it's my, my uh, limited knowledge of these, but I didn't think they were spatially able to determine where things were. How do you, how do you do that? How do you work out where the spikes are? Right. So that's a great question because that's exactly why 
in my research, I use what we call multimodal neuroimaging, which just means there's, in my case, two types of brain imaging being used at the same time. And so EEG, or electroencephalography, is one of them. And that is really great at telling us exactly when things happen mm-hmm. on the scale of milliseconds. Yeah. But like you said, it has really poor spatial resolution because it's just based on electrodes on the scalp. And it can only record from areas of the brain that are close to the scalp, not the deep areas. Um, So we get this wonderful information about when from the EEG. And at the same time, we acquire fMRI data, functional magnetic resonance imaging. And what that can do, it has beautiful spatial resolution on the order of millimeters. It can get deep inside the brain. But it's really slow. Right. So it's uh, it's about three seconds. Um, every three mm. seconds, you get another pretty picture of the brain, and it measures blood flow, and we relate that to neural activity. But it's you know this is on the order of seconds, so that's why we combine them. Hmm. So could you use this this medical imaging to see different spikes that perhaps don't show up in the EEGs, or is it is it kind of you use them in concert more than? Yeah, it's it's more in concert. Okay. To, to It's a way of using these advanced signal processing techniques mm. and machine learning methods to infer some information about what's happening, what's related. So to there couldn't spikes. be spikes, you know, deeper in the brain, because I think you said the, the EG works on kind of the outside, I suppose you yeah. could call it. There, there couldn't be stuff deeper in the brain that you could detect. With right, the- not with the EEG, for sure. So the actual spikes are kind of defined... You know, that a spike is something you see on the EEG, and mm. you're right. If it's deep in the brain, we don't detect it. Mm. Um, but what we can do by combining these two types of data is see which parts of the brain that might be deep inside mm. are associated with the more superficial cortical yep. activity. So this is an incredibly powerful way of combining these two tools. Um, and and when you do this, do you see um, a lot of similarities in patients or are you seeing really individualised results when you start to look at, well, you know, if you can map these spikes as sort of mini models of, of where the seizures will come from, are you seeing trends in your patient? I mean, how many people have you looked at and, and, and are you seeing um, any sort of consistency across the data or is everyone's... Uh, response to focal epilepsy different? Yeah, everybody's quite different. Um, we do want to understand where the common regions might be. So, for example, the thalamus is probably pretty strongly involved in all of this. But in the type of epilepsy I study, we really have to look at it at a single patient level, which makes it really hard to study. Um, we've got quite a few patients right now that it's really... it's difficult to get the exact kind of data that the acquisition of this data is actually quite complex mm. so that's um the first issue is just getting the data and then beyond and that i suppose yeah. you're asking patients to give a lot of their time to undergo quite complex imaging um procedures yeah so a lot of these patients that we get the data from are actually being seen not for not directly for me for the experiment but to help them in terms of determining if they're candidates for surgical resection. So for some of these patients that are really difficult to treat and don't respond well to medication, which is 30% of patients, it's a big problem, we can remove one part of the brain if we can localize it to you know, a specific area and we know it's not overlapping with parts that they really need for language and memory. Um, 
It's, I mean, it's, it's really interesting, the idea of being able to isolate where these spikes are occurring. Because, as I said, we've had many guests talk about um, research in epilepsy over the last few years, and, and in particular the use of, you know, electrical therapies and, you know, counteracting that storm with, with electrical impulses on, on the brain and, and knowing where to put those and how to do those. It sounds like if you don't have this information, you just can't do it effectively. Exactly. And that's what the big impact of my research is to find these targets that are going to be, uh, that are going to be able to help patients and treat them by either stimulating those areas or mm. removing them. But something that's really interesting about these spikes and about what we're finding is that it doesn't just involve malfunctioning of that one little brain area. It's actually widespread effects with every spike across the whole brain, which, you know, doesn't really make sense in the context of one single focal area, but we see this across many Mm. patients. You know, this is a very common thing to find. So that's why with our techniques we really are trying to figure out when on the order of milliseconds because we want to know if it's the focal regions that are recruiting all the other healthy brain regions and that's what we think we're seeing and we Mm. think that um all of the widespread brain networks are working to possibly suppress that abnormal activity with each spike to prevent a seizure from starting. Mm. So that's what our findings have Jeez, shown us. It's, it's fascinating stuff. Whenever we talk about this on the air, I, I find it incredibly interesting. The brain is such a complex item. Jennifer, thanks so much for coming in to talk to us about this today, and I hope that uh, this continues and you can isolate this further and further down the, down the line. Congratulations on the good work. Thanks for having me. Dr. Jennifer Walls is from the Flory Institute studying epilepsy. Triple. Uh, you're listening to 3RRR. I'm Dr. Shane. It's Einstein and Go-Go time. Our next guest in the studio is Jane Visveda. She is from the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute. Jane, welcome to the studio. Thank you for having me. Now, I uh, think you're working in one of these amazingly interesting areas that we all talk about all the time, but no one has really come out and worked out exactly how some of these things actually work, and that's the stuff that you've recently published in Nature Communications, which is not a unknown journal. Um, You're working on how lactation actually functions in the body and and what's happening there. I I mean, the immediate question that I always ask here is around what in in the body turns on? Like, what's happening that says, okay, all of a sudden I have to produce breast milk? Well, I think at in late pregnancy, the cells are all geared towards milk production, mm-hmm. and milk also has protein, lipid, and carbohydrate, but milk proteins are a pivotal component. And at the switch to lactation, so you, you move from uh, pregnancy into mm-hmm. lactation, these cells essentially become milk-producing factories. Okay. And it, it obviously evolved <clears throat> more than 300 million years ago as an epidermal appendage, which is quite remarkable. And... It, it, it evolved to sustain the young, obviously. I mean, that's the primary function mm. of the lactating mammary gland or the mammary gland per se. Yeah, and and so in in, in all mammals, we 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 in see in, we see this, and and what's happening in the cells? Because you, I mean, this is the work that you've been looking into the actual cells themselves and what's going on. 
at some point there must be some signal or some trigger, you know, babies born or just before that start producing milk. And these have to be perfectly timed because if you're producing a lot of milk and you don't have a baby to feed, this isn't the best thing in the world for mothers as, as I understand it as a man. No, it's all perfectly orchestrated <laughs> and it's done by uh, sex hormones and um, pepto- a peptide hormone called prolactin. Mm-hmm. So it's very, very uh, tightly controlled. Okay. Uh, it's all through hormones. And, and what's happening to the cells in the in the the, the producers themselves? Are they they're changing? Yes, in late pregnancy we see for the first time the cells with two nuclei arising. So this is very atypical. Normally mm-hmm. a cell will have one nucleus. So in very late pregnancy this starts to occur. Um, in early lactation you see vast numbers of these cells produced and they stay throughout the whole uh, lactating period. But once lactation has finished, so upon weaning, they are rapidly removed. It is incredibly rapid and I think... This is obviously important to uh, avoid any genetic mishaps that might occur if these cells hung around. And what do you mean by genetic mishaps? I mean, what, what would happen if we continue to have cells with two nuclei? So each nucleus seems to have um, uh, two copies of uh, the homologous chromosome. So we've got, instead of having a diploid cell, we have uh, a tetroid uh, cell. And it's perfectly orchestrated because these uh, you've got a double a double number of genome copies, but it's not within one nucleus. The nuclei mm. actually divides to give two nuclei that then sit within uh, the one boundary. Mm. And I think it's very hard to know why this evolved, but one potential uh, answer I think is that we are doubling the numbers of milk protein genes, so yeah. it's genome doubling. And it must be a more efficient mechanism together with ramping up uh, protein synthesis because you've got uh, two nuclei. They can make more of the components that uh, then go to the cytoplasm and are uh, very important for uh, actually making the milk protein. And I don't know how early on this evolved, but clearly uh, millions of years ago. um, And it must be to maximise milk production because if we actually prevent a binucleated cell forming and instead are left with cells that only have one nucleus, we see a drastic decline in milk production and also lactation is not successful. Mm. And I guess just thinking about the wider implications of this, I mean, I, I don't know, if I looked down the microscope and saw all these cells with two nuclei, I'd be like, what's going on? Because normally that's a sign that, that something's going wrong in cell division. Um, you know, that you would, because normally if a cell divides, it, it creates another copy of its ge- genetic material and then it splits. Um, and But if, if, if cell ends up with two nuclei, that's a cell that that's not undergoing cell replication correctly and therefore has a potential to go on and become an abnormal dividing cell, which we normally call cancer. So, so mm-hmm. it's this kind of thing where if you look down the microscope and you see all these nucle- these cells with two nuclei, you think, well, that, this must be wrong. But for the fact that this is actually a, an evolved um, uh, benefit to be able to produce lots of protein, it's quite extraordinary. Was this a new finding? Had any, has, where else has this binucleated um, cells in lactation been documented in other animals or in other systems or did someone just look down the microscope one day and think, hey, this is weird? Polyploid cells, so that's another term for a cell that has more than one genome copy, they are remarkably common. You see them in fish, in insects, um, and throughout mammals. And if you look at mammals, we have them in our heart. Um, blood cells that make platelets for clotting, uh, they are polyploid, so they're not uncommon. But I agree it's a very risky business because this is exactly what happens in a cancer mm. cell. More than a third of them have duplicated genomes. And if you look at even... Uh, 
um, an extra chromosome coming on board with Down syndrome. I mean, that's mm, uh, quite deal. severe too. So why why do we have these cells? I think if you look at, uh, for example, a blood cell or a heart cell or even a trophoblast, which is um, in the placenta, all of these cells are very busy cells. They make a lot of protein. Mm. So there has to be some benefit um, to having um, one, one cell with a lot of genome copies in being able to produce lots of the protein synthesizing machinery. We don't quite understand. There's a lot more to do here, but, but mm. clearly there must be some benefit. And in the liver, the liver is a great example because it has to detoxify all the chemicals and noxious substances yeah. that come more into our bodies. Mm. It's got to do it very efficiently. And those cells, um, have mm. more than uh, one genome copy. Jane, I think it's fascinating, like, that this, I mean, one area that I've always found very interesting interesting and mentioned before on the show is that not all women are able to breastfeed their children. There's a lot of women who have a lot of trouble doing that. Is it likely that this mechanism that you're, you're working on and you've been publishing on is perhaps problematic in some of those women who have trouble lactating? I mean, it's, it's a very common problem that we're, we're almost not allowed to talk about, but there's a lot of women who, for whatever reason, are unable to breastfeed their, their young. Is, is it likely that this is part of the cause of that? I think it could be one factor. And there may be other factors as mm. well, such as the ability to contract because the the breast can, actually is composed of this ductal tree and the tree actually has to contract. There are these specialised cells around the ducts that help the duct to contract and expel the milk. So it could be... Um, it could be the, the a lower proportion of these cells that have two nuclei. It could be the contractile mechanism, uh, mm. all of these. And, of course, we're not in any position really to mm. to analyse this properly because you can't yeah. do that with human subjects. Yeah. And I think the, the final um, unsolved question about this research that you've done is, well, what gets rid of them at the end? Like, like what what is the switch the, the body switch says, <laughs> OK, we, we don't need to make milk anymore, um, and you said that they disappear really quickly... Do, do we know how or why? At some point, the, the, the immune system says, no, these cells are fine, please leave them. And then, and then it suddenly it one day says, nope, get rid of them all. Yes, it's programmed cell death. So oh. it's not a passive process. It's, it's very active. So mm. the, the cells are primed to actually undergo cell death. Mm. And it occurs within a, a day or two. It's, it's very rapid. Super fast. Jane Vizveda, thanks so much for coming in and talking to us about this. It's really exciting that this research is done here in Melbourne and um, I'm sure people all over the world read it, reading this Nature Communications paper will be going, wow, yeah, we should have thought of that. Um, you guys got in first. Congratulations. Uh, thanks for chatting to us. Oh, thanks, Shane, and everyone. Jane Vizveda is from the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute doing some amazing work on um, milk production and lactation. Three. Triple. In the studio with us is Professor Elizabeth Hartland. She's the head of the Department of Microbiology and Immunology at the University of Melbourne and Deputy Director of the Peter Doherty Institute for Infection and Immunity. Elizabeth, welcome. Thanks. It's great to have you in here. Now, you're, you're working in the area of Legionella. Yes. Um, this is that thing you get from air conditioners, right? Can you tell us a bit about that? Sure. So it's the disease is called Legionnaire's disease, and it's mm. a kind of pneumonia, and it's caused by bacteria, and their fancy name is Legionella pneumophila. And it's a bacterium that lives naturally in soil and water. And the emergence of Legionnaire's disease has resulted from um, people making 
air conditioning systems, man-made mm. water sources and heating this up to a sort of ambient temperature where the bacteria can grow to high numbers. So we get sick when we inhale droplets that contain the Legionella bacteria. And, and so you, you hear about these uh, checks on air conditioning systems that occur. I mean, there's obviously this water reservoir in some of them that sits at a certain inappropriate temperature and then presumably the air conditioning system just spits that all through the building. Is that, is, that, is that what's occurring? Well, sort of. So it's associated with air conditioning systems that um, are built into large buildings, and these are the cooling towers that sit outside the building. So th- mm, the job right. of the cooling tower is to actually cool down um, the, the, the air yeah. through water exchange, water heat exchange, and so that water that's sitting outside the building heats up heats and up. grows up the bacteria. Yeah. Now, when, when someone gets Legionnaire's disease, what's happening in the body? So the, the first thing that happens is that the bacteria sort of pass down into the, the deeper tissues of the lung and they, they get taken up by these immune cells called macrophages. Mm-hmm. And macrophages are like the sort of garbage disposal units of our immune system in the lung. But the bacteria are able to avoid their normal digestive and killing mechanisms and um, start to replicate so they start to mm. divide and, and grow up inside the macrophages and they, they're capable of doing this because out in the environment they can do this uh, in amoebae so amoebae mm. are like the natural host cells right. of Legionella and they've adapted to, to replicate in these environmental phagocytes which are the amoebae so for Legionella it doesn't matter if it's an amoeba or it's a macrophage it can use its same virulence factors and processes to, mm. to replicate so that's the first thing that happens but this doesn't go unnoticed by the rest of the immune system, so we start to generate, uh, in most cases, a pretty fierce immune response to, to control this bacterial replication. Mm. Now, in that immune response, one of the things you've been looking at, and this this is something we don't get to say on air very often, but you've discovered a new cell type. Well, people knew about these cells before, but in the lung it's very uh, difficult to identify cell populations because you know, we identify cells based on the markers that they express, and, mm-hmm. and we have a certain number of reagents that can do that but there have been a whole sort of new set of markers uh, made available by a a group working uh, overseas and we adapted that to look at how legionella infects the lung and so we were able to identify a population of cells that really we just hadn't been able to see see before so we knew about them in other places in mm-hmm. other yep. types of situations, but we didn't know them about them in Legionnaires' disease. And, and, and what the, I mean, what's the difference with what's so special about these cells? Why are we excited? Well, uh, we're really excited about them because we found that they were not only coming in in very large numbers into the lung and very rapidly, so they're there within 24 hours, and then there are you know very large numbers of them at 48 hours, so very mm-hmm. early. But not only that, they're taking up the bacteria and unlike macrophages, the bacteria can't replicate. So these new monocyte-derived cells, they're called, are taking in the bacteria and killing them. Okay. So they're so, very important. So, but Legionnaire's disease is something that it can kill us, right? I mean, so, so what, yep. so the macrophages that normally do this job, they're not quite doing the job. Yep. And these other cells, even though they're coming in on mass, are they enough to to defeat the bacteria in total in the body or is it well they're certainly certainly a really important part and what mm. we found is that this population of monocyte cells um, communicate with other immune cell types and so there's a whole sort of immune circuitry that's going on they're all speaking to each other with these chemical messengers called uh, cytokines mm. 
Um, so they're not the only important cell type, but we do think they play a major role in the ability of people to contain the infection early and to then clear it. So what we typically do when people get these infections, we pump them full of antibiotics and so forth to, to attack these particular bacteria. Yeah. I mean, is the alternative approach, given you know that these cells are there to sort of somehow trick our body into making more, making faster, you know, more efficient. I mean, can we do that sort of stuff? I mean, are we, is that the sort of way to move away from the sort of normal antibiotic response? Yeah, I think it's an important adjunct to giving anti- antibiotics. So antibiotics are still incredibly important mm. for an infection like Legionnaire's disease. And the earlier people get them, the earlier they're diagnosed, then the better their outcome. But the antibiotics work because the immune system also plays a role in containing the bacteria and killing them. Yeah. So we, we need both those components to recover effectively from something like uh, Legionnaire's disease. Mm. So if we can enhance the immune side of it, then that would be a good thing. Yeah. Now, uh, Dr Crystal's getting excited. Oh, no, I was going to ask also <laughs> about um, uh, the balance that's required here, because you might imagine, uh, because a lot of the disease that the body experiences during um, infection is often almost a side effect of the um, sort of immune system response. So, so yes, your immune system helps kill the bacteria, but a byproduct of the production of all those cytokines and all these inflammatory cells is disease itself. So I was wondering if you could comment on what's happening in that pneumonia state that Legionnaires um, plays and whether these monocyte-derived cells are actually both um, protective, but do they have a potential to go wrong? I don't think we know enough about them in the, the context of how they act in the lung to know how much they're contributing to the pathology. But, but you're right, part of the uh, symptoms of pneumonia are because of the immune pathology that's going on. A lot of it driven by neutrophils and other immune cell type that are you know, quite effective killers of bacteria, but they do cause a lot of tissue damage. So I don't think we have a sense yet of how much the, the monocyte-derived cells contribute mm. uh, to that sort of pathology but in people who have really advanced stages of Legionnaire's disease you know, the bacteria have moved from the lung and they can disseminate to other parts of, of the body so they, they can cause a more systemic infection in, in very serious cases. Mm. And do they do that like because they're still inside macrophages? Because you said that the, the, the Legionnaire's disease bacteria live inside the macrophage do they kind of use those macrophages as taxis to take a ride to elsewhere or like how, how do the bacteria spread it's possible that they do that or that they a person is so immune compromised that they the bacteria can start to replicate in the blood if their oh. their blood phagocytes are, are not doing the job that they should mm. so as a someone who has no background in biology whatsoever um in terms of, you know, you're talking about antibiotics, but then also these, these cells as well, um, kind of complementary action on, on the Legionnaire's bacteria. Um, but do the antibiotics impact on those monocyte cells as well or not really? They're, they're, they're not going to affect those. Is there any? Well, they shouldn't. They so, should, you know, yeah. the ideal antibiotic that, that we give people attacks the, the bacteria and not mm. our own host yeah. cells. Uh, having said that, in high enough doses, then some antibiotics can yeah. start to affect mm. the activity of immune cells. That's true. Mm-hmm. Liz, what, what's next in this? Because, I mean, you've identified the cell type now. It, it's something that's it's doing a job that people weren't really aware of before. And this is, this is a really big problem internationally, this particular disease. I mean, a lot of your work, work is around various aspects of the immune system but what's next for this because it it seems to me as though you've kind of found a bit of a a trigger to the the response our bodies can naturally give that's not quite enough to help us so where do we go from here what we'd really like to understand is how the monocyte derived cells are killing the bacteria Mm. and we know that they're 
um, activity is dependent on this chemical messenger which is called interferon gamma and that's a, it's a very well characterised uh, cytokine but no one really knows how it leads to bacterial killing mm. and so we've looked at the behaviour of cells that have uh, can respond to interferon gamma and the monocyte drive cells that can't and we're looking for differences in um, how those cells, you know, the sorts of genes that they express and the sorts of proteins that they have that might be involved in bacterial killing. So that's where our the next sort of scientific goal is for us. Mm. I just had one question. The rise of antibiotic resistance sometimes keeps me awake at night. Um, as, as, as someone who works very closely in this field, what are your thoughts on our, our capacity to generate new antibiotics? Oh, we're not moving fast enough. That's for sure. I mean, we need, yeah, I think that that's true. If we look at the rise of multi-resistant bacteria, whether they're hospital acquired, whether they're community acquired, then it's a a really serious problem. Mm. It's not just looming, it's here now. Professor Elizabeth Hartland, thanks so much for coming in and talking to us today and um, keep up the good work and once you've dealt with Legionella, get on to some of these other areas. Okay, thanks very much. <laughs> no, no pressure. Uh, Professor Elizabeth Hartland is the Head of the Department of Microbiology and Immunology at the University of Melbourne and Deputy Director of the Peter Doherty Institute for Infection and Immunity. We're almost out of time, Dr Ailey, Dr Crystal. I did want to mention actually that... Uh, this morning, uh, the the country should be mourning, actually, one of our greatest ever scientists, Professor John Love, died this morning, who, for those of you who knew him, um, he was a mentor to many of us and was one of the absolute fathers of uh, waveguide theory, which, if you've got fibres somewhere in your bloody home, people, you can thank this guy for a lot of the great work he, he has done and has been an incredible member of the ANU community and Oxford and so forth for many, many years. So... Salute to you, John, and um, many of us will miss you greatly. We have to hand over from the team to uh, Edith, what are they called? Yeah, Cam and and Matt Stedman are over there waiting for us to switch studios with them. Dr Ailey, thanks so much for coming in. Good to have you back. Yeah, thanks, Shane. Good to be back. Great to get you back in the country from your junket. (laughs) Dr Crystal? Yes, I'm I'm off home to analyse Labor's science policy announcement that came out this weekend, um, trying to work out what's going to happen for science uh, if uh, uh, with the outcome of the uh, upcoming election. I was going to talk about my weekend, but that sounds so exciting. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, folks, uh, if you've nodded off, wake back up because uh, Edith's coming up in just a few seconds. I'm Dr Shane. You've been listening to Einstein and GoGo on 3RRR. Remember, science is everywhere, and we will chat to you again next week. This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.